Well, good morning. Hope everyone is doing well this morning. Beautiful day that the Lord has given to us. Uh, very beautiful day. And uh, so great to be here with you. Just briefly before I get into the session, I do have some resources available for you on the table back there, a number of different resources. Uh, the DVD set, now it's a few years old, but uh, and, and I'm actually getting a new one edited right now, but it'll, it'll be a couple of months before it's out, at least a couple of months. But um, anyway, uh, I've added quite a bit of stuff, but the, I mean, the gist of it, it's, it's still there on those DVDs. I've got some articles I've written on these people who claim to have been to heaven and hell, you know, and write books about it, make careers out of their trip to heaven. Uh, it's entitled your best afterlife now. And, uh, that's available for you. I've got an article I wrote on Santa Claus and you may be thinking, well, what in the world is wrong with Santa Claus? But I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about how much like God Santa Claus looks. Santa Claus is basically omnipresent. He goes around the world in one night. Um, he's eternal. He never dies. He's just there year after year after year after year. He's omniscient. He knows if you've been sleeping. He knows if you're awake. It's just kind of creepy. He ha he's a giver of gifts, and yet we know that every good perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Santa has stolen most of God's attributes. He looks a lot like God. But God is a jealous God, and he will not share his glory with another. And so just some food for thought on uh, Santa Claus, uh, some, some other stuff back there. There's a, a brochure from a lady named Susan Heck, H-E-C-K. Her pastor, her husband is a pastor. And um, Susan Heck is a really, really good Bible teacher. I'm not a big fan of Beth Moore. And we'll talk about that in a little bit in the next session maybe. Uh, Susan Heck is a really good Bible teacher. She has 23 books of the Bible memorized. Not in verses, books. Uh, so she's a force to be reckoned with. She writes Bible studies for ladies. And she only teaches ladies. Unlike Beth Moore, she only teaches ladies. And um, ladies are really good. So um, Beth Moore has poor hermeneutics and, and a number of other issues. But uh, Susan Heck is really good, really good, solid stuff. So if you've, if you've done a Beth Moore study um, and you go to Susan Heck, it'll be, go, be like going from potted meat to filet mignon. Really good stuff. And her brochures are back there. Those are free. Her contact information, resources. And uh, so excited about her, uh, the work that she's doing. And uh, some other, other few issues, uh, resources. The prices are listed, but let me also say that if the cost is in any way prohibitive to you, don't worry about it, really. If money is tight and you need some of, the, some of these resources, please help yourself. Don't even have to ask me. Don't have to ask my wife. Just help yourself. So uh, I want you to be equipped to speak the truth in love. So those are available. Okay. Let's begin. We will, uh, before we begin, though, let's, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer, and then we'll start. Our Father, we do thank you for this time that you have given to us, another day that has fallen from your sovereign hand, Lord. You have extended your goodness and graciousness to us yet again. We thank you for uh, the opportunity that we have to gather as your called out ones, and we thank you for your word and its sufficiency and, uh, Lord, we pray that this would be a time of equipping and uh, we would be more able and um, be more able to 
to give out a, a reasoned answer for the hope that is within us, yes, and, and also we will know how to uh, engage our friends and family members who are in this movement. And, uh, and by your grace, Lord, through the, your truth, we pray that your spirit would open their eyes and, and bring them out of the deception. These things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. This session is entitled Dangerous Doctrines, and this session we'll be looking at the metaphysical cultic origins of the word faith movement and then the standard doctrines which the faith preachers teach. And I think by the end of our session here this morning, you'll be able to see that the prosperity gospel is indeed a different gospel altogether. It's not just wrong on a few minor things here and there. It's a different gospel. So where did the word faith movement begin? It began with a man named Phineas Parkhurst Quimby. Quimby, you could call the great-grandfather of the Word of Faith movement. He's the one that first began to articulate some of the doctrines that we see today. Quimby was the father of the metaphysical cult known as New Thought. And when I say metaphysical, that's a big word, but all metaphysical means is beyond the physical realm, beyond what we can see and touch here. And when I say cult... I mean any group or sect that calls itself Christian yet compromises or denies some of the fundamental tenets of the faith. Mormonism is a cult. Jehovah's Witnesses belong to a cult. Roman Catholicism is a theological cult. Not a cult like Jim Jones drink the Kool-Aid kind of cult, but a theological cult because they compromise and deny some of the fundamental doctrines of historical Christianity. And we'll talk more about that later on. Quimby was a student of occultism, hypnosis, parapsychology, and I believe that much of what we'll look at in our next session after the break can be attributed to these disciplines. His formulations served as the basis for what is today known as Christian science. Mary Baker Eddy claimed that she was physically healed by Phineas Quimby. Now, when you read her life story, she was a sickly woman her entire life. But she claimed that she was physically healed by him. And she was so impressed by his teachings that she took his teachings and then developed them a little bit further. And from that formed what is today known as Christian science. You've probably heard of Christian science. Uh, Christian science is very poorly named, by the way. Because it's not Christian and it's not scientific. It's kind of like grape nuts. They're not grape and they're not nuts. Christian science is not Christian and it's not scientific. But there are a lot of Christian science overtones in the modern prosperity gospel. One of which is the denial of physical symptoms when it comes to sickness and disease. Both New Thought and Christian Science essentially hold that disease, sickness and disease, is rooted in incorrect thinking. And so whether you've got cancer or you've got a cold, that is a result of just incorrect thinking. It's all rooted in your mind and then it manifests itself. But you should never admit that you're sick. You should deny physical symptoms because they say that they're not really real they're just rooted in incorrect thinking and so you deny when you're sick if you have a friend or a family member in this movement you might have picked up on that uh, maybe they've got a cold and their eyes are watering their nose is running they're congested they're sneezing the whole nine yards but they deny it oh no i'm not sick you know they won't positively confess that uh, well that's christian science and christian science just has its 
tentacles in the Word of Faith movement. The Word of Faith movement has its tentacles in most churches today. So Quimby is the one that first begot, uh, got the ball rolling. Essek W. Kenyon is the grandfather of the Word of Faith movement. And all of your modern prosperity preachers would appeal to Essek Kenyon as one of their spiritual gurus. Kenyon had very clear ties to the metaphysical cults, particularly the New Age movement and New Thought movement. He attended college at the Emerson School of Oratory in Boston, where the metaphysical cults flourished. Uh, They were very prominent, and he was heavily influenced by them. He didn't buy into all of it, okay, but he kind of picked and chose. He cherry-picked some things here and there from the metaphysical cults and then kind of wove that into his Christian theology, and he did have some things right. In fact, I would argue that Essek Kenyon had more right than what the modern prosperity preachers do. The modern prosperity preachers like Ken, um, like uh, Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland, Joyce Meyer, they have taken Kenyon's mistakes and just made them worse. So compared to the modern prosperity preachers, Essek W. Kenyon was fairly orthodox by comparison. By comparison. Kenneth Hagen is the father of the modern word faith movement. And uh, the modern prosperity preachers used to call him Dad Hagen. And despite Kenneth Hagen's teaching that no believer should die until he's at least 120 years old, you see here Kenneth Hagen didn't quite make it. He died at age 86. Now, as is common with all of the faith preachers, they claim that they received new revelation knowledge directly from God himself. Or from Jesus himself. And this is their way of insulating themselves, excuse me, against biblical criticism. And they'll say, well, if you can't find what I'm teaching you in the Bible, uh, don't worry about it. Because I have it from the highest authority. Jesus himself came and gave me these teachings. So if you can't find it in the word, don't worry about it. It's okay. I got it from Jesus. Hagen claimed that Jesus physically appeared to him on eight different occasions throughout the course of his life. And they're really bizarre, really bizarre. But uh, on one of these occasions, Hagen claimed that Jesus gave him the following words. He says that Jesus showed up to him and actually dictated to him these words. It's interesting, however, that Jesus apparently bears a striking resemblance to Essek W. Kenyon. If you can see, it's practically word for word identical. Hagen did not get this from Jesus. Hagen plagiarized Essek W. Kenyon, among other writers, by the way, and plagiarized them quite extensively. So the faith preachers are very fond of claiming divine origin for what they teach. But uh, as you can see, the origins are not nearly so impressive. Just plagiarize others. I want us to look now at the doctrine of positive confession. Uh, The faith preachers teach that we can literally speak things into existence. Uh, Watch these brief clips. Look at me, say, 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 all all of you, say, there's power in me me. to speak life and death. death. You call what you have, you say what you want. And I'm here to tell you, I know that I know that I know that as these programs are airing, I am speaking something into existence. Amen. 
I'm speaking something into existence. If that sounds like God's act of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, that's because it is. Friends, only God can speak things into existence. That is not an ability that you and I have. But what the faith preachers do, and indeed what most false religions do, is they diminish the glory of God, they, they demote God, and then they deify man. And that is exactly what the prosperity gospel does. It diminishes the glory of God, demotes God, and deifies man, and blurs that line of distinction between God the creator and us his created. And in case you may be thinking, oh, well, that, yeah, that's not really what Benny Hinn was talking about. He's not really saying we can actually speak things into existence like God did. That's not really what the prosperity preachers teach. Uh, yeah, it is. This is, this is a tweet from Creflo Dollar. As spiritual beings who possess the nature of God, we have the ability to speak things into existence just like God did. Yeah, this is what they teach. Absolutely is. Listen to this audio clip of um, Kenneth Copeland and Paul and Jan Crouch. Does God use faith? Surely. Now, now see, here's the sore spot. There are those... Not with Who him. say? Not with, not, not with you. No, no, no. <laughs> not with God. I'm not, in fact, I'm not sore at God at all, and I don't think you sore at me. I don't know. I haven't done anything to you. No, but the, the critics say God is God. He doesn't have to have faith. He doesn't exercise faith. He doesn't use faith. He's God. He's the object of faith. Oh, wait a minute. What does that mean? Object? I don't know what that means. I don't either. Did you, there's a couple of things there. The, uh, the first thing that strikes me when Kenneth Copeland starts there, he says, "Now wait a minute, I don't think God soared me. I hadn't done anything to him. Really? You haven't done anything to God? But then he goes on and he says, uh, now wait a minute, what's that mean, God is the object of our faith? I don't know what that means. And then you hear Jan Crouch say, well, I don't either. Really? You don't know what it means to say that God is the object of faith? You see, but that's standard fare in the prosperity gospel. In the prosperity gospel, faith is not placed in God. God is not the object of faith. Faith is the object of faith. They don't place their faith in God. They believe faith is a force that you direct at God to make him do what you want him to do. And it's really ironic when you think about it that these people who call themselves faith preachers don't even know what faith is. They don't even know what it is. But they believe essentially that faith is a force. It's, it's not unlike Star Wars. And you either tap into the good side of the force or the dark side of the force. If you speak Positive things, you will attract positive things to you. If you speak negative things, you will attract negative things to you. This is, the, this is what's called the law of attraction. The law of attraction, uh, more commonly known as the secret. Have you heard of the secret? Oprah Winfrey has been very uh, fond of the secret here in the last several years, been promoting it heavily. Uh, Oprah may be a nice lady, but she is not a Christian. Ladies, don't listen to Oprah. 
Our theology is so messed up. But this is essentially what it is. The prosperity gospel is essentially a Christianized version of the secret, the law of attraction. And it's this universal law to which even God himself is subject. Even God himself is subject to the law of attraction. Watch this video clip, one of the more bizarre clips dealing with the doctrine of positive confession. This from Gloria Copeland. You know, you're the you're supposed to control the weather. I mean, Ken's the primary weatherman at our house, but when he's not there, I do it. He can see what's happening out there. It shows just like they have on at the weather, like on the news. I mean, he's got the computers, got the current weather on it and all that for flying. So uh, sometimes I'll hear something. I'll hear the thunder start. Maybe he'll still be asleep. And I'll say, Ken, you need to do something about this. <laughs> and knowing that. But you are the one that has authority over the weather. One day, Ken and Pat Boone, well, we were in Hawaii at their house, and we were, they were sitting outside, and there was a weather spout out over the ocean. And that's like a tornado, except it hits the water. And so they were sitting there, and they just watched it, rebuked it, it never did anything. One day, I was in the airplane in the back, and my little brother was in the back with me, and Ken was up front flying, and we were not in the weather, because we don't fly bad weather. But we, we could see the weather over here. And I looked out the window, and that tornado came down just like this, down toward the ground. And Ken said, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. You get back up there. So this is how I learned how to talk to tornadoes. I saw this. And that tornado went, woo, 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 woo. Even while I was watching him, my little brother was not a devout Christian at that time, and that was really good for him to see. So you're the weatherman. You get out there or the weather woman, whichever it is, and you talk to that thing and you tell it you're not coming here. I command you to dissipate and you get back up there in Jesus name. Glory to God. That, that I won't charge you extra. <laughs> now that really is so patently absurd. It doesn't even need a comment, but, but a couple of brief ones. You notice how... She says that we can control the weather, but we don't fly in bad weather. Why not? I mean, if you can control it, fly through whatever you want to fly through. You know, honestly, just a little common sense goes a long way in clearing a lot of this stuff up. But then she says... We can control the weather. You're the weatherman. You're the weather woman. Dear friends, if it is true that Gloria Copeland and her faith friends can control the weather, then I would submit to you that the prosperity preachers are some of the most selfish, hateful, callous, narcissistic people alive on the face of the earth today. Where was she when Hurricane Katrina rolled into the Gulf Coast? Where was she when uh, Hurricane Sandy hit the northeastern coast here a few months ago? Where was she a couple of years ago when wildfires were raging out of control in Australia and burned hundreds of homes and killed hundreds of people? Where was she? 
Why doesn't she right now get on her $20 million Citation 10 private jet and fly to some of these drought-stricken countries in Eastern Africa and talk those starving people up some rain? You know, you think about how many people every year are killed by weather-related disasters. Thousands, tens of thousands around the world every year, whether through drought, flood, tornadoes, hurricanes, mudslides resulting in floods. You know, thousands every year. And if the prosperity preachers can control the weather, if they have that ability... And yet they just are too lazy or too selfish to do anything about it to save all these thousands of people's lives. Then I would submit to you then they should be charged with thousands and thousands of cases of negligent homicide each and every year. If they can do what they say they can do, if they can control the weather and just choose not to do anything about it, too selfish to do it. They should be charged with thousands of cases of negligent homicide every year. But you know what? I'm not that hard-nosed. I don't think they should, should be charged with thousands of cases of negligent homicide. Because they can't do what they say they can do. They're liars. They're liars. Speaking to storms, making them go away. Sounds a lot like what... Jesus did, does it not, in the boat with his disciples? You see how they blur that line between God the Creator and us his created? You remember the account of the angel giving the announcement of, uh, to Elizabeth that she was going to give birth to John the Baptist? Remember this? And uh, Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah were advanced in age. And when Zechariah heard about this, he, he kind of doubted a little bit. Remember that? And as a result, what did God do? God closed his mouth, right? Made him a mute for six months. For a very interesting take on why God closed his mouth, this from Joel Osteen. Why did God take away his speech? It's because God knew that Zechariah's negative words would cancel out his plan. See, God knows the power of our words. He knows that we prophesy our future. And he knew Zechariah's own negative words would stop his plan. Wow. So according to Joel Osteen, God was up in heaven looking down and he saw Zechariah making negative confessions and God just went into a panic. Oh, my goodness, what am I ever going to do? I wasn't counting on this. And so in a last-ditch effort to save his plan of redemption, God reached down and closed his mouth and made him a mute. Whew. Wow. Boy, that was a close one. You see, where is the sovereignty of God in this? The faith preachers have no concept of the sovereignty of God. The God of the prosperity gospel, little g, the God of the prosperity gospel is not the God of the Bible. The God of the word faith movement is not the God of the Bible. The God of the prosperity gospel is a very weak, very puny, very effeminate God. It's not the God 
of the Bible. I've been talking about how there are the, the prosperity gospel is essentially a Christianized version of the metaphysical cults. Christian, uh, Christian science, new thought, Gnosticism, the New Age movement. This is very interesting. Um, a friend of mine was in the bookstore the other day and he saw this book, Supreme Influence. Supreme Influence. Subtitle is Change Your Life with the Power of the Language You Use. He found this book in the New Age section. And as it so happened, this was in Barnes & Noble, as it so happened, uh, the New Age books in the quote-unquote Christian books were right beside each other. And literally right beside this book was this book. This is Christian. This is from Joyce Meyer. Change your words, change your life. Understanding the power of every word you speak. See how similar they are? It's the same thing. Doctrine of Positive Confession is just a little bit of a Christianized version of New Age thought. It's cultic. It's just been wrapped in a little bit of Christianese. I mean, practically identical books. But one, you see, is Christian. Joyce Meyer, no, it's not. It's cultic. I want to talk now about the little God's doctrine. All of the faith preachers teach that if you are a Christian, you are in fact a little God. Watch this exposition of Genesis 1, 26, 27 from Creflo Dollar. Creflo Dollar is undoubtedly the most aptly named of the prosperity preachers. But watch this. Now, in verse 26 and verse 27... God now submits himself to this principle of everything producing after its own kind. And in verse 26 and 27, let's read it out loud. Ready? Read. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Now that's interesting because if everything produces after its own kind, we now see God producing man. And if God now produces man... And everything produces after its own kind. If horses get together, they produce what? And if dogs get together, they produce what? If cats get together, they produce what? But if the Godhead gets together and say, let us make man, then what are they producing? They're producing gods. Now, I got to hit this thing real hard in the very beginning because I ain't got time to go through all this, but I'm going to say to you right now, you are gods, little g. You are gods because you came from God and you are gods. You're not just human. The only human part about you is this physical body that you live in. The real me is just like God. The real me is just like God. Blasphemy. 
blasphemy. When Creflo Dollar talks about man being created in his image, he extrapolates from that that we are just like God. That is not what being created in the image of God means. As human beings, as human beings, we are created in the image of God and we are therefore the pinnacle of God's creation. We are the pinnacle of his creation. I don't care what PETA says. We are inherently, infinitely more valuable than a chicken or a, or a dog. You know, I've got nothing against dogs. I like dogs. But you know what? The greatest, smartest dog in the world will never know God. Because he's not created in his image. We are. We have the potential and the capacity through a saving relationship with Jesus Christ to know God. And none of the other created order has that privilege and ability. And that is what it means to be created in the image of God. We have some of the moral attributes. We, we, we have a, a conscience. We have the potential and the capacity to know God through Jesus Christ. But that does not mean we are God. The Bible is very clear. There is only one God. There is only one God. And He is a jealous God. And He will not share His glory with another. And if I remember my Bible correctly, wasn't the desire to be just like God kind of what led to the whole fall thing to begin with? Isn't that ironic? That the very thing that the prosperity preachers teach is truth is what led to sin in the first place. It's what led to the whole fall thing to begin with. And who else wanted to be just like God? Satan did. He wanted the worship that God was getting. He, he wanted the praise. He wanted the adoration. And he, so he rose up in rebellion against God and it got him and a third of the angels kicked out of heaven right along with him. The little God's doctrine, and all of the faith preachers teach it, is quite literally a doctrine of demons. It is a doctrine of demons. This is not the same gospel. The prosperity gospel is a different gospel. But they teach that we are gods. Not unlike the Mormons. A lot of overlap between Mormonism Word of faith, Roman Catholicism, word of faith, even Islam in word of faith. A lot of overlap. Same basic heresies, just packaged a little bit differently for different audiences. The little God's doctrine is, however, why they hold so tenaciously to health and wealth. Because we are gods. We're gods. And a God cannot be poor, and a God certainly cannot be sick. We're gods, so we should be wealthy. We should have everything. We should own the cattle on a thousand hills. We should be healed. God is never sick. We should never be sick because we're just like God is. This is why they hold so tenaciously to health and wealth. We're gods. Let's look at what the faith preachers teach about the doctrine of the fall. And this is going to kind of help us encapsulate this movement. 
here in a nutshell. Number one, the faith preachers teach that Adam was an exact duplicate of God. He was not a little like God. He was not a lot like God. He was God. God literally reproduced himself in Adam. And they say that Adam was another Yahweh. Adam was another Yahweh. Well, we all know what happened, right? Adam sinned, which, of course, brings up an interesting question. If Adam was Yahweh and he sinned, was it Yahweh who sinned? You see, when you think these things through, carry them out to their logical conclusion, you see how dark they are. But when Adam sinned, he lost his deity, transferred it to Satan. When this happened, the real Yahweh God lost his legal right to planet Earth and was kicked out, banished. And so according to word faith theology, even as we sit here this morning, the real Yahweh God is indeed up there somewhere, but he's got no access to planet Earth. He's gone. He has to get our permission to interfere. Well, somebody has to fill that void, right? So Satan is all too eager to step up to the plate, and Satan becomes the legal God of planet Earth. Dear friends, Satan is not the legal God of planet Earth. God is the legal God of planet Earth. St. Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul says, In whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not. Now, it's an unfortunate rendering, I think, because when you look at that word, World, in whom the God of this world, when you look at that word world in the Greek, the word is actually the word aeon, which means age, not this planet. So what Paul is saying is, is that this world is so fallen, people are so fallen, so depraved that they follow after him as if he were the God of this age, but not the legal God of planet earth. God is the legal God of planet earth. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Well, according to the faith movement, guess what happens when a person gets saved? Guess what he gets back? Oh, he gets his godhood back. He regains his deity. He becomes God again, just like Adam was before he fell. And again, this is why they hold so tenaciously. They will not budge on their teaching that it is always God's will for us to be wealthy, always God's will for us to be physically healed. They will not budge on that because they teach we are God's. And the prosperity gospel essentially says this, come to Jesus because he'll make you wealthy and he'll heal your body. They appeal to two of the most basic and universal of all human desires. Most people want to be wealthy. And very few people actually enjoy being sick. There's a few of them out there that just like the attention, I suppose. But most people don't like to be sick. And the prosperity preachers say, well, if you'll just come to Jesus, then you can have these things. You can be wealthy. You, can, you don't have to be sick. You can be healed if you'll just come to Jesus. Or as Rick Warren says, just try Jesus for 60 days. Dear friends, if you come to Jesus for those reasons, you've come for the wrong reasons. You have not truly come to know Christ as Savior and Lord. The gospel is not about making you wealthy and healing your body. The gospel is about making provision for your sin. Now the real gospel says, come to Christ 
Repent of sins and trust Christ because he will remove the wrath of God from you. The righteous wrath of God that all of us deserve and rests on us and abides on us. When we repent of sins and trust Christ, that wrath will be lifted. That wrath will be moved, satisfied in the atoning work of Christ. And then we will have heaven. Yes, we will have eternal life. But on this life, we're not promised money. We're not promised healing. What are we promised? We're promised tribulation. We're promised persecution. It's not quite as popular, you see, as saying, come to Jesus because you can be rich. You don't have to be sick anymore. And friends, there are tens of millions of people around this world, if not hundreds of millions of people around this world, who have responded to the prosperity gospel, but they have not responded to the true gospel. Dear friends, there are no adjectives to the gospel. There is no prosperity gospel. There is no social gospel. Thank you very much, Tony Campolo. If you have to add an adjective to the gospel, you've got a different gospel. There is just the gospel. Just the gospel. Watch this from Joseph Prince, rising star in the Word Faith Movement. You can always tell how powerful a truth is by the number of controversies the devil gathers around it. Yeah. Okay, when, when God restored the truth of healing, the devil put a signpost that said heresy. Yeah. When, when God restored the truth of prosperity, the devil put a signpost that says heresy. Yeah. And the church back off from the truth. Yeah. We shall not back away from the truth. No, no. And, and, and you can tell the, how powerful the truth is by the amount of controversies against the truth. Wow. Joseph Prince using a little bit of reverse psychology, essentially, and he says, you can always tell how much the devil opposes the truth, uh, a, a truth by the, the, the roadblocks, the obstacles that people put up in front of it. So, you know, what he's talking about is that these people, this faithful remnant of true believers who actually care about sound doctrine, who actually care about the truth and warn people, hey, the gospel is not about making you wealthy. The gospel is not about healing your body. He says these people are in opposition to the work of God and are actually in, in cahoots with Satan. He is the one who is in cahoots with Satan. He is the one who is teaching a different gospel. Joseph Prince is very slick. He's very articulate. And he has some truth in what he teaches like they all do. But mixed in with that truth, poison. Joseph Prince is a false teacher. This kind of leads us into the softening of sin. We've been talking about how the, the real gospel is about having the wrath of God removed. The prosperity gospel makes it about enjoying life here on earth. Very similar to the social gospel of Tony Campolo and Brian McLaren and the, and the emergent guys. But they soften sin. Uh, every false doctrinal system soft pedals sin. And a lot of supposedly theologically conservative churches do this too by watering down the gospel. The market-driven approach to church, seeker-sensitive approach to doing church. They kind of soften sin, you know, make it not so bad. Um, it's not just the prosperity preachers that do it. Some Baptists do it. Watch this from Rick Warren. Rick Warren. 
Christmas time. Yeah, away, well, if, you got, if you got two doors, right. one says this one goes to life with eternity with God, right? And this one says eternity without God, right? If I walk out the door that says eternity without God, do I blame God for that? No, that's right. my choice. Right. That's my choice. And so I choose to reach to to go to hell. Mm -hmm. You have to do almost the impossible. What you have to do, you have to reject the grace of but, Jesus but Christ. Doesn't... Now, Rick Warren says, to go to hell, you've got to do almost the impossible. That is a stunningly unbiblical statement. Friends, you know what you've got to do to go to hell? Be born. Everybody is going to hell. They are running to hell just as fast as their little fallen feet will carry them. They're running there as fast as they can. You don't have to do almost the impossible. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Soft-pedaling sin. Now, Jesus has something to say about this and quite different the disciples, this is Mark 10, the disciples were even more astonished and said to Jesus, then who can be saved? Jesus says, with men it is impossible, but not with God, but not with God. So Rick Warren says, it's almost impossible to go to hell. Jesus Christ says, it's almost impossible to go to heaven. Who are you going to believe, Rick Warren or Jesus Christ? I don't know. Rick Warren is a false teacher. Rick Warren is a theological chameleon, is what he is. He's very ecumenical. He holds hands with everybody from Roman Catholics to Mormons to Muslims. Has actually gone on record saying that Allah and Yahweh are the same God. Rick Warren is a false teacher. But he changes his stripes. He is whoever his audience is on that particular occasion. Watch this. This is also of Joseph Prince. Joseph Prince being interviewed with Joel Osteen on TBN. Watch this. To do this, but you're getting the same kind of response, aren't you? People yes. need and, and want. You know, the word repentance, uh, like Joel said, is from the Greek word metanoia, which literally means change your mind. And uh, every time, like Joel or, or me preaching the word, without using the word repentance sometimes, but people's minds are being changed all the time. From thinking this way negatively to thinking positively. Now, there's some truth there. Joseph Prince says, um, he says, well, even if we don't use the word repentance, we're still teaching the same thing. So, you know, don't use any biblical terminology. That'll just confuse people. Don't do that. Don't use the word repentance. But he says, he says the Greek word for repentance is metanoia. He's right. He's right. And he says metanoia means a change in your mind. He's right about that too. That is what the word means. But then did you notice how he actually defined it, how he fleshed it out? He said repentance is, he says, even though we may not use the word, we are teaching people to repent all the time from going from thinking negatively to thinking positively. According to Joseph Prince's definition you could of repentance, you could repent simply by joining the Optimist Club. Just having a more positive outlook on life. 
That's not what repentance is. Repentance does indeed mean a change in your mind, but it is a change in your mind that is wrought by the working of God's Holy Spirit. And when God does this, there is fruit. There is a change in life. There are deeds following. The Apostle Paul says this. He's speaking to King Agrippa. He says, So, King Agrippa, I kept declaring that all people should repent and turn to God performing deeds appropriate to repentance. We do not perform deeds to repent when God grants repentance. These deeds will follow as part of the outflow, the fruit of God's work in our lives. There will be a change in life. John the Baptist says, therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance does indeed mean a change in mind, but that is not all that it means. It's not just going from thinking negatively to thinking positively. It is a change in your life. It is a change in your affections. It is a change in, in, in everything about the person when God's Holy Spirit grants it. They water down. Sin softens sin. Contorting the covenant. If you've watched Christian television for very long, you might pick up that most of the prosperity preachers spend most of their time in the Old Testament, not in the New. There's a reason for this. What they like to do, they like to make take promises that God made to individuals or to the nation of Israel and make blanket application for us today. And they really like the covenant, the, the Abrahamic covenant. And they like to say, well, God made Abraham a wealthy man. And Abraham was wealthy. And that he was under the old covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. So we are under the new covenant today, which is even better than the old covenant. And so we should have everything that Abraham had and even more. They take promises that God made to individuals and nation of Israel make blanket application for us today. This, these brief clips. If you want on God's master plan, you're going to have to give him some master time and some cooperation. It's a good plan. It's a health plan. It's a prosperity plan. It's all the good things. God told Israel, if you'll do these things, you'll be blessed. You'll have a surplus of prosperity. You'll, you'll be delivered from sickness and disease. You'll live long. It's God's will for us to live long and live strong. And this from Mike Murdoch. How serious is God about being believed? In Deuteronomy 28, he says, if you'll believe me, I'll give you anything you ask for. I'll bless your houses. I'll bless your lands. So they take promises that God made to Israel or individuals in the Old Testament and make blanket application for us today. And as I said, their favorite uh, proof text of this, they like to look at the Abrahamic covenant and they say that Paul uh, reaffirms this in Galatians chapter 3. Paul writes, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Wow. Well, we're Gentiles, right? You know, so doesn't it say right there that we should have the blessing of Abraham? Abraham was a wealthy man, so therefore we should be wealthy, right? Well, no. There's two big problems with this interpretation. Number one, it ignores the second half of the verse. The verse continues to say, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. 
So what is in view here? Material blessings, health and wealth, prosperity? No, spiritual blessings, forgiveness of sins, the the complete and total satisfaction of God's righteous wrath. The second problem is the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional. In other words, it was not contingent upon Abraham's faith or lack thereof. When God cut the covenant with Abraham, God did it. God did it. And it really didn't have anything to do with Abraham or his faith or lack thereof. God did it. In fact, when God cut the covenant with Abraham, Abraham was asleep. He was sawing logs. He was in stage four REM. He didn't even know what was going on. God did it. So it's not even the same paradigm that we see today. The prosperity gospel says you can have enough, uh, you can have money and healing as long as you have enough what? As long as you have enough faith. As long as you speak the right words, tap into the right side of the force. Not even the same paradigm. And by the way, when you read Genesis carefully, uh, Genesis 11, when Abraham was coming out of the land and it said he had his family and his possessions and his slaves with him. You know what? Abraham was a wealthy man before God ever cut the covenant with him. It's not like the covenant all of a sudden made him wealthy. He was wealthy before God even did that. But let's not let the Bible get in the way of our theology. Watch this video clip from uh, Benny Hinn and Miles Monroe. Pastor, we get the mind of God about His will. We pray it. When we pray it, we give Him legal right to perform it. Yes. Let me define prayer for you in this show. Prayer is man giving God permission or license to interfere in earth's affairs. In other words, prayer is earthly license for heavenly interference. That's incredible. (laughs) That is incredible. God could do nothing on earth, nothing has God ever done on earth without a human giving him access. So he's always looking for that somebody. Always looking for a human to give him power, permission. In other words, God has the power, but you get the permission. God got the authority and the power, but you got the license. So even though God could do anything, he can only do what you permit him to do. God can only do what we permit him to do. Dear friends, I would submit to you that God can do whatever he jolly well wants to do. (laughs) And isn't terribly concerned about whether or not he's got our permission to do it. God can do whatever he wants to do. Don't take my word for it. Psalm 115 verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Oh, yeah, but that just, that's just talking about how God can do whatever he wants to in heaven, not on earth. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. Oops. Friends, God can do whatever he wants to do. And is not losing a great deal of anthropomorphic sleep over whether or not he has our permission to do it. The God of the prosperity gospel, little g, is a different God than the God of the Bible. Watch this from Jesse Duplantis. 
Friends have frank and open conversations with each other. I've done that with the Lord. I've had the Lord say, uh, Jesse, I've had God come tell me, he said, this is what I'm going to do. I've had the Lord say, what do you think about this? God has asked me for my opinion. God asks Jesse Duplantis for his opinion. Pray tell, continue, Mr. Duplantis. I said, well, Lord, since you ask, maybe I'm doing it. He said, no, we can talk frankly. What do you think? I said, well, I don't think you ought to do that. He said, why do you don't think you ought to do that? I said, well, you know, I know you know people more than I do, but you know, Lord, if you just let me, let me do a little bit of work on this individual, I think we can get them to you. He says, okay, go ahead. Do what you have to do. And I tell you what, the Bible says he who wins souls is wise. Yeah, and he who thinks he can counsel the Alpha and Omega is a fool. God speaking. Who is this that darkens my counsel by words without knowledge? Just the thought that we could go and counsel God or just the thought that God would come crawling to us, asking us for our opinion. Dear friends, these people are not Christians. Are you saying the prosperity preachers are lost? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. They are not Christians. There is no way you can teach these kinds of heresies, these kinds of blasphemies, and be indwelt by God's Holy Spirit and teach these things openly and repeatedly and without any prick in your conscience. There is no way. This is not a little slip of the tongue. This is not, you know, a debate about who wrote the book of Hebrews. You cannot teach these things and be indwelt by God's Holy Spirit and not just be absolutely brought to your knees over it. They are not Christians. This also from Jesse Duplantis. I'm, I'm going to say something going to knock your lights off. God has the power to take life, but he can't. He got the power to do it, but he won't. He's bound. He can't. He says death and life is in the power of whose tongue? Yours. You ready for this? You want something to knock your lights off? You choose when you live. You choose when you die. So God has the power to take life, but he can't. I think that might come as a bit of a surprise to a, a number of people in the, in the Bible. You remember, remember uh, King Herod? When God killed him and he was eaten by worms, Herod would probably differ with Mr. Duplantis on that. Uh, who else? Remember Uzzah? When Uzzah reached up to steady the ark and God struck him dead? You think God doesn't take obedience seriously? I mean, poor old Uzzah, all he was trying to do was steady the ark, but he was not allowed to do it. God killed him. Uzzah would dif disagree with Duplantis too. Who else would disagree, disagree with Mr. Duplantis? Let's see. Oh, yeah. Everybody alive on the face of the earth, except for eight people in that little flood thing, they'd probably beg to differ with Mr. Duplantis. 
You remember how I was talking about how the uh, word of faith movement, the prosperity gospel, is cultic doctrine wrapped in some Christian terminology. I'll reference the secret, the law of attraction. They made a movie on the secret. And I want to show you a trailer clip from this movie on the secret. And uh, watch this. See if you don't notice some some uh, similarities between the prosperity gospel and the secret. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. The prosperity gospel is little more than the secret, the law of attraction that has just been wrapped in a little bit of Christian terminology. And uh, the end of this clip, when the the man rubs the, the bottle, rubs the bottle and this big genie comes out, your wish is my command. The God, little g, the God of the prosperity gospel is nothing more than a big cosmic genie. And as long as we rub him with our faith and speak the right words, we can get him to do whatever we want him to do. His wish supposedly is our command. It's the same thing. It's cultic. It's cultic. I want us now to look at what the faith preachers teach about the person and work of Jesus Christ. If we can establish that they preach a different Jesus, we can establish that they do indeed preach a different gospel. Many of the faith preachers hold to what is essentially an Arianistic view of Christ, Arianism. Arianism was an ancient heresy that was in the early church, and it held that Jesus did not come as God, that Jesus just came as a man, a man who had a very close walk with God but was not actually God in human flesh. And this was a, a problem in the, in the church, in the early church, and they, they had to deal with it. And they did deal with it in the Council of Nicaea in AD 325. They voted it down resoundingly. They, they labeled it as heresy. And yet the modern prosperity preachers hold on to it. This from Creflo Dollar. Creflo Dollar says this. And somebody said, well, Jesus came as God. Well, how many of you know the Bible says God never sleeps nor slumbers? And yet in the book of Mark, we see Jesus asleep in the back of the boat. Jesus came as a man at age 30. God is now getting ready to demonstrate to us and give us an example of what a man with the anointing can do. Y'all, please listen to me. Please listen to me. This ain't no heresy. I'm not some false prophet. Your friends, as a general rule of thumb, if a preacher actually has to tell you that he's not a false prophet, chances are. Chances are. So he says it's simply because Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat and God never sleeps nor slumbers and he could not have been God. That's ridiculous. When Jesus came to this, this earth, he was fully God and he was fully man. He was the God man. And while he was incarnate on this earth as the God man, Jesus got hungry, he got thirsty. And he got sleepy, just like all of us do. That does not mean he was not God. That's ridiculous. And notice that Creflo says that God is now getting ready to demonstrate to us and give us an example of what a man with the anointing can do. A man with the anointing. That's, that's who they say we are. We are men and women with the anointing. And so we can do everything that Jesus did. All the rights, all the privileges. In fact, uh, Kenneth Copeland says that the Christian, get this, quote, quote, is just as much an incarnation as was Jesus of Nazareth. 
nothing special about Jesus, you see. This from Kenneth Copeland. And Jesus volunteered to go to hell. I'm going to tell you something. Ain't nobody ever got out of there. The only thing he had to go by was the promise of God that I'm reading you right now. He didn't have some special revelation from heaven between he and God the Father. No, the Bible said he emptied himself when he came. And he saw himself in the word and said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He found himself in the word. So Kenneth Copeland says that Jesus didn't have some special revelation from heaven between, he should be him, between him and God the Father. No special revelation, you see. No, no, nothing unusual here. No, no special re- uh, relationship between God the Father and Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus didn't even know who he was. He just walked into church one day and started reading the scripture and said, Well, I'll be John Brown. Look, look here. Look who I am. No special relationship between heaven and Jesus, between Christ and God the Father. Nothing special there. And you notice Kenneth Copeland says that Jesus emptied himself. Okay, this is really key for them. He emptied himself. And so so he did not have any of his deity, any of his divine attributes. He emptied himself and he was just a man. Just a man. Well, does the Bible say that Jesus emptied himself? Yeah. Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. This is very key for the word faith preachers. The Bible does say, Paul does say that Jesus emptied himself. But what does this mean? What does this mean? It doesn't mean what the faith preachers claim that it does. What does it mean? Does it mean that he emptied himself of his deity and was nothing more than just a man? No. Does not mean that at all. Does it mean that he emptied himself of his divine attributes? Doesn't mean that either. Now, a lot of people say, well, uh, Jesus emptied himself of his divine attributes. He was not uh, omnipotent. He was not omniscient. Is this what this is talking about? No, no, not at all. Now, some will say, well, Jesus didn't know everything while he was on earth. Because he said, you know, that day or hour, you know, not even the Son of Man knows. And so Jesus did not have omniscience. He did not know everything. Be very careful. Be very careful. When it says that Jesus emptied himself... It's not talking about him emptying himself of his deity or his divine attributes. What it is saying is that that on occasion, on occasion, Jesus emptied himself of his divine prerogative to exercise some of those divine attributes. Does not mean he didn't have them. Does not mean he didn't have access to them. He just emptied himself of his divine prerogative to exercise them. Now, Interesting. Watch this. Uh, the disciples, this is the disciples talking to Jesus. They say, now we know that you know all things. Okay, what a, what a great setup, right? Now, if Jesus did not know all things, what a great opportunity for Jesus to say, 
okay, guys, I, I know you think I know all things, and, and I did know all things before I came to this earth, but here, while I'm incarnate, the God-man, um, I don't know everything. What a great opportunity for Jesus to correct their theology, right? But what did Jesus do? Did he correct their theology? No. He said this. He answered, do you now believe? He affirmed them. Do you now believe? Jesus affirmed he did indeed know all things. He was omniscient. He emptied himself merely of his divine prerogative on occasion not to exercise some of his divine attributes. Doesn't mean he didn't have them. Doesn't mean he didn't have access to them. On occasion he just did not exercise them. That's what that means. According to Kenneth Copeland, Jesus supposedly appeared to him and said this to him. Don't be disturbed when people accuse you of thinking you are God. They crucified me for claiming that I was God, but I didn't claim I was God. I just claimed that I walked with him and he was in me. Hallelujah. That's what you're doing. Jesus said, I didn't claim I was God. I just claimed I walked with him. You're doing the same thing. You're just like me. Never to be outdone with himself. This also from Kenneth Copeland. And I say this with all respect so it don't upset you too bad, but I say it anyway. When I read in the Bible where he says, I am, I just smile and I say, I am too. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. These people are not Christians. They are not Christians. Watch this video clip from Larry Huck and Paula White. We really begin to understand that, that, that when Jesus Christ paid the price, the first thing that happened after he said it is finished is the veil was rent from top to bottom, signifying that no man could do that. But the price that was paid was there's now no separation so that we have direct access in the Holy of Holies. We understand, according to Hebrews, that Jesus is our high priest Absolutely. and he's the first of many brethren, which means I now come into a priestly anointing. So I now can Say that again because they don't get it. I now come into a priestly anointing. Jesus is not the only begotten Son of God. He is not. I'm a son of he's God. He's the first fruit. You're the, he's the first fruit. He's the first born of many. Jesus is not the only begotten Son of God. Can you believe that? Flat out denying that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Have they read John 3.16? Unreal. Friends, those of us who are saved, who have been regenerated by God's Holy Spirit, we are children of God by adoption. But there is only one who is begotten, and his name is Jesus. We're not talking about minor theological issues here. We're not talking about whether you're pre-trib or mid-trib. You know, we're, we're not talking about... When was the date of the exodus? These issues go to the heart of Christianity. What, what, what one believes about Jesus will determine where one spends eternity. Watch this from Victoria Osteen. This is Joel Osteen's wife. And she's doing a communion service, which is problematic in and of itself. But uh, she actually starts off eh, 
fairly good, but it goes downhill real quickly. Watch this from Victoria Osteen. You see, Jesus walked this earth in a human body. He was man. He was God made flesh. The Bible says he was tempted and tried in every way, just like we are, but he overcame. See, Jesus was man until God touched him and put the spirit of the living God on the inside of him. And that's encouraging today. No, that's heretical today. Jesus was just a man until God touched him and put his spirit on the inside of him. Different Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible. This from Kenneth Copeland. Kenneth Copeland writes in his magazine, Believer's Voice of Victory, God is a family man. We've called him father. We've seen he is not trying to keep people out of his family, but to bring them in. And we've even begun to realize that like any father, he desires for his children to be healed, healthy, to have enough, not just to survive, but to prosper and to bless others. God's purpose and plan, the deepest desire of his heart is coming to pass. And watch this. God is going to have a family of equals. Sounds a lot like Mormonism, doesn't it? I want us now to look at the spiritual death of Jesus. All of the faith preachers, without exception, teach this. Joyce Meyer, Joel Osteen even, back in the day, uh, teaches that Jesus' physical death on the cross was not enough to pay for sins. That he also had to die a spiritual death. They teach that when Jesus was on the cross... The work of the atonement had just begun. But when Jesus died, that's when things really got going. When Jesus died, he then went to hell. He suffered and was tormented by the demons in hell, died spiritually. And to quote Kenneth Copeland, the lights went out in Jesus. Died spiritually, ceased to be God, and then Jesus had to be reborn. Jesus had to get saved. This from Copeland. Jesus had to go through that same spiritual death in order to pay the price. Now, it wasn't the physical death on the cross that paid the price for sin, because if it had been, any prophet of God that had died for the last couple of thousand years before that could have paid that price. It wasn't physical death. Anybody could do that. It wasn't the physical death. Anybody could have done that. No, Mr. Copeland, nobody else could have done that because no one else is sinless. This from Bill Johnson. This is a little hard to hear, but this from Bill Johnson. Bill Johnson is a uh, member of the New Apostolic Reformation Movement. It's a sister group off of Word Faith, kind of a splinter group off Word Faith. He uh, pastors Bethel Church in Redding, Redding, California. This from Bill Johnson. Well, we have... Uh a little dramatic thing uh, presented to you. Dra- I don't know, did you know that Jesus was born again? I asked at first, Christ- first service. And he said no. But I will show you, it's in the Bible. Jesus was born again, and no, it is not in the Bible. 
But he died spiritually, you see. He ceased to be God. Spiritual death. Now, why is this such a dangerous doctrine? We're not splitting theological hairs here. Dear friends, if Jesus died spiritually, okay, if, if Jesus died spiritually, that means he ceased to be God. Because God is life. He is the essence of life. He is the source of life. And if Jesus died spiritually, then he ceased to be God. If he ceased to be God even for an instant, then he never was God to begin with. Because God cannot cease being God. Are there things that God cannot do? Yeah, there sure are. God cannot lie. God cannot sin. God cannot be tempted. God cannot cease being God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13, 8. He does not change. If there was ever a time when Jesus was not God, then he never was God to begin with. Now, some people will say, well, what about what Jesus said on the cross? Let's look at this. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, a lot of people will take this to indicate that Jesus died spiritually or at least Jesus, God the Son, and God the Father were completely and totally separated. Complete and total separation. A clean break. Be careful. We've already talked about how Jesus cannot cease to be God. You know, a spiritual death is not possible. Not in his deity. So if he never ceased to be God, if he always has been and always will be God, if he never ceased to be God... But God the Father and God the Son were completely and totally separated. I mean a clean break. Then what you've got now are two independent coexisting gods. Can't have that either. We're not polytheists. One God. Three persons, but one God. Triune Godhead. So what does this mean? Jesus is quoting Psalm chapter 22 verse 1. Now, in order to properly understand this, we have to keep it in context. Remember, you know, you don't take a verse of Scripture out of context. You leave it in its context. And let's look at this in its context. The, Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. He's quoting David. And when you look at a little bit fuller context of Psalm 22, look down a few verses. David continues all in the same context. But be not thou far from me, O Lord, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither has he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard. You see, David had gotten to this point where he felt like God had abandoned him. But even though he felt that way, in reality, you see, God had not abandoned him. Be not far from me, O Lord. He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither has he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard. God was there. God had not abandoned him. David felt like it. But we don't base our theology off of our feelings, right? Don't base our theology off of our feelings, off of our emotions. Base it on, on the objective truth of God's word. 
Dear friends, I think we have to bend the knee and we have to admit that there is a certain mystery to exactly what Jesus experienced on the cross that we will never fully grasp, never fully understand this side of heaven. When it comes to the atonement, the suffering of, of Jesus on the cross, we have to be careful not to say too little. But we also must be careful not to say too much. Was the suffering of the crucifixion, crucifixion was, it the, was it the flogging? Yes. Was it the crown of thorns? Yes. Was it the nails? Yes. The thirst? Yes. All of those things. Excruciating. But it was more than that. There was a spiritual element to that. Because not, was, not only was it just the physical sufferings, but the wrath of God, the righteous wrath of God was being poured out on the Son. And it pleased the Lord to do this. And Jesus fully bore the wrath of God. And it may be said, now bear with me, it may be said that in His human spirit, okay, his, in his humanity, Jesus did endure some kind of spiritual death, even if you will, in his humanity. But in his deity, Jesus was never separated from the Father. Not in his deity. What else did Jesus say on the cross? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Jesus was praying to the Father on the cross. And so we know that those lines of communication, if you will, within the triune Godhead were still very much intact. It was the physical death of Jesus that atoned for sins. The Bible gives so much evidence for this. I mean, verse after verse after verse. Just a few of them. Paul writes, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or in heaven, having made peace through the what? Through the blood of his cross. Peter writes, For Christ also died for sins. How many times? Twice? Physical death and a spiritual death? Died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, made alive. In the spirit, by the spirit. Paul writes, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We are not saved so that we can have our best life now. We are saved from the wrath of God in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. There are so many passages that refer to the physical death of Christ. As the atoning work of our sins. It was not a spiritual death. This from Jesse Duplantis. You see I don't let Jesus carry his cross alone. I believe that when we deny ourselves by putting God and others first. We are actually helping to carry the cross. Who does this man think he is? That he is actually going to help Jesus carry his cross. Well, he's about 2,000 years too late. That ship has sailed. And Jesus, that's the whole point of the cross, that Jesus bore it alone. He was the only one qualified to bear it. The audacity 
of a man thinking he's going to help Jesus carry his cross? Who does he think he is? Unreal. Dear friends, something that you'll notice about every cult, every cult disparages the cross of Jesus Christ. That it just is not enough to pay for sins. A works salvation disparages the cross. Mormonism disparages the cross. Jehovah's Witnesses disparage the cross. Word of faith disparages the cross. Roman Catholicism disparages the cross of Jesus Christ. That it is not enough to pay for sins. How do they do that? May or may not be aware. But according to official Roman Catholic doctrine, when the priest takes the little wafer, what they call the host, and he offers it up in their, in their sacrifice of the mass, that's what they call it, sacrifice of the mass. When he, off, when he offers it up, according to official Roman Catholic doctrine, the priest has power not to ask Jesus to come out of heaven and get into the little cracker, but to pull him out of heaven. And Jesus bows his head in humble obedience. And he goes into the cracker. Their doctrine of transubstantiation. And it becomes the literal flesh of Jesus Christ. And the priest offers it up. And you know what they refer to it as? The victim. The victim. Dear friends, Jesus has never been nor will ever be a victim. He is the victor. His life was not taken. He gave it. But they call it the victim. And when they offer it up, they believe the reason they call it the sacrifice of the mass, they believe they are sacrificing Jesus over and over and over and over thousands of times all around the world every week. Thousands. They are sacrificing Jesus. To put it real bluntly, they think they are killing him. They think they are killing Jesus over and over and over and over and over. And yet Peter could not have been more clear. Christ died for sins once for all. It's kind of ironic that the Catholics are so strong when it comes to abortion you know, they're, they're so strong pro-life. I'm glad they are. You know, I mean, we should all be pro-life. That's a no-brainer. But it is kind of ironic that they're so strong pro-life when it comes to abortion. But they've got no problem killing Jesus. They look forward to it. And Catholics do not believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They believe you have to add all of these works to your faith. You've got to go to confession and confess your sins to a priest who's just as sinful, if not more so, than you are. You've got to go to confession. You've got to do your penance. You've got to do all these things. Add all, you've got to pray the rosary. Do all these things. Add all of your works to your faith. That is an offense to the gospel. We are not saved by our works. Our works have nothing to do with our salvation. Nothing. Not one percent. Not one half of one percent. Nothing. And the Catholics teach when you die, then you get to go to purgatory to have the rest of your sins burned up. That is also an offense to the gospel. 
Do I hate Catholics? Absolutely not. We should love Catholics. But you know what? We should love them enough to tell them the truth. I hate Roman Catholicism. Like I hate word of faith, like I hate Mormonism, like we should all hate any false doctrinal system. Because it is a, an affront to the gospel and it dishonors God. We should love Catholics. And we should love them enough to tell them the truth. Every cult disparages the cross of Christ. And as we conclude this session, Peter writes to us and he says this. But false prophets arose among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. There might be, there will be. There will be false teachers among you. And how will they introduce their dangerous doctrines with flags waving, guns blazing, secretly? They will have some truth mixed in with that truth, error, poison, even denying the Lord who bought them. Any man who would teach that Jesus did not come as God is denying the Jesus of the Bible. Any man who would teach that, that we can contribute to our salvation by our works, denying the Jesus of the Bible, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. When their destruction comes, and it will, it will be swift. Many shall follow their sensuality. This movement is huge, and it is growing. It is exploding in Central and South America and Africa huge and it is a face along with roman catholicism it is the face of christianity in most of the world today by reason of whom the way of truth will be maligned what way of truth the way of truth the gospel will be maligned will be distorted and in their greed they will exploit you with false words the king james renders it this way says they will make merchandise out of you all of the prosperity preachers are opulently wealthy and they are making merchandise out of sick and hurting and desperate and undiscerning people. And they are making merchandise out of distorting the gospel. Every phrase fits so perfectly what we see today. Every phrase. Hope that this has been helpful for you. Uh, this is kind of a, a cliff note version of, of the doctrines of the word faith movement, the prosperity gospel. It is indeed a different gospel. When we come back from our break... The next session is entitled Mangled Manifestations. We'll be looking at being slain in the spirit. We'll be looking at tongues. Uh, these people who claim they've been to heaven. False prophecies. Uh, how does God speak to us today? Those kinds of issues. And so, Brother Steve.